0: Hey, good morning. If nothing else this morning, you get to sit in air conditioning for an hour and a half. So it's already a win. Thank you for being here this morning. Uh, My name is Matt, one of the pastors here. Uh, This is one of those fun mornings for a preacher because we're we're transitioning. We uh, we spent the last six weeks working on a series that really you asked for in the sense that we asked you your biggest faith questions, your, the biggest doubts you have about the Christian faith, about what it means to follow Jesus, and you shared those with us. We got uh, tons of feedback, and we, we, we were able to do a series on really the six biggest questions you asked. Um, and Now, for the rest of the summer, we're beginning a series in a little book called Hosea, Hosea is found in the Old Testament. It's considered a minor prophet. It comes after Daniel, a little bit after Lamentations and the Psalms. You can take the five minutes it sometimes takes to find those little minor prophets in your Bible. If you don't turn to them regularly, it will show up in the screen in a little bit when we read some of the text. But um, I read this as I was doing some of my study on this book of Hosea that we're going to do a series on for the rest of summer. Here's what this one um commentator said, the minor prophets, there's 12 of them, are the most difficult portion in some respects of the Old Testament. And of that portion, as acknowledged by all, the most difficult is the book of the prophet of Hosea. Probably no part of scripture is commonly read with so little benefit as the minor prophets. Owing no doubt to the obscurity in which some parts are involved. I don't know about you, but I take that as something of a challenge. They think that it's, they're the, this commentator says that these are the most obscure books, often the most difficult to understand. And uh, of, of those, Hosea is the most challenging. Well, we're going to take that head on for the rest of summer. Challenge accepted. And uh, here's, here's one of the reasons we're doing that. Beyond the themes that we're going to get to into in Hosea, one of the reasons we're, we're, we're speaking out of a little book in the Old Testament called Hosea is that here at Central, we, we hold the Bible in high regard. If, if there's a posture for that, it's literally us under the word, meaning that when we come to the Bible and open it, these are God's very words to us. The whole thing, not just our favorite underlined verses in the New Testament. But like this Bible, the whole thing is God's very word to us. And so we come with a posture of saying, Lord, we're under it. What would you have us learn? And, and we submit ourselves under it saying, God, we want to be faithful. And so what that means is that we we, we need to practice that. If that's our posture, we need to exemplify that, meaning that we want our life groups, those, those groups the meet in living rooms that many of you are a part of all year long, that we open up the Word of God together, and not just a couple of the books in the New Testament, but the Bible. And so we're going to spend a number of weeks here in Hosea, what a commentator considers to be the, one of the most difficult portions, obscure, and of very little benefit. And we're going to say, we can open to the book of Hosea in the middle of summer in 2015 and discover yet again the richness of God's word, how there is so much for us to learn, to live by, to hear. There are some powerful themes in this little book called Hosea. So why don't I pray and then I'll I'll share a little bit about this author, this story, and we'll work through chapter one this morning. God, thank you so much uh, for your church. Lord, I, I feel privileged to be a part of it, and I am a sinner. I am somebody who, Lord, before you, I have I've done so many things wrong, but, but you don't write me off. And, Lord, as we gather together in the church, it's a big group of sinners gathered together, and we have a common song, and that common song is the good news of Jesus Christ. It's the gospel that, that you save sinners. And so that's our song. Lord, there's nothing in and of ourselves that makes us better. Lord, the greatness of the faith is that we get to give our lives to Jesus and you take over. And so God, we by being here in this room in, to some degree we're saying that. Saying, Lord, we want to learn. We want to grow. So I pray, Lord, as we give ourselves to your very words. Lord, would you speak? Help me not to get in the way and help us to see more clearly who you are. And how we ought to live in light of that. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So this this man, Hosea, he's the main character of this book. He's the author of this book. His, His name means salvation. Along with two other men in the Bible, his name means salvation. Joshua means salvation. Hosea means salvation. And Jesus means salvation. Salvation is truly found in Jesus Christ. And what I love about the book of Hosea is it is pointing to Jesus Christ, our salvation. Here's how this little book, this little prophetic book begins. Verse 1, here's what it says. The word of the Lord came to Hosea. These are God's words, to Hosea. The word of the Lord came to Hosea, the son of Bere, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Jotham. Ahaz and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, that's the southern state. And in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, that's the king in Israel, the northern state. And what we discover in Hosea chapter 7 verse 5 is that it seems to indicate, Hosea seems to indicate there that he's part of the northern kingdom. He's part of Israel, um, not Judah. And so the, these there's these two uh, states. And Hosea seems to be a part of Israel. Uh, the northern kingdom because as he speaks of the king in the north in Israel he says our king and he doesn't refer that way to Judah which would make him and Jonah the only two writing prophets from the northern kingdom Hosea and Jonah are the only two writing prophets from the northern kingdom Hosea's ministry began during the end of Jeroboam the II's reign um, and during this time Israel was experiencing a couple of things They were experiencing political peace and material prosperity, right? There was peace in the land, and there was prosperity in the land. All of that's going on. Meanwhile, at the same time, moral corruption and spiritual bankruptcy is going on. And when Jeroboam died, anarchy actually ensued. Um, It's interesting when we see in verse 1 what I just read, we see a list of all these kings in the line of Judah and then he lists Jeroboam in Israel. What's interesting is that during Hosea's lifetime, there were like six more kings in Israel. But he doesn't list them. And I think the reason is because when Jeroboam was killed, um, someone just really power-hungry went after the throne, killed the king. This happened six times over. It was really anarchy. Anarchy. Um, There was assassination assassination after assassination by successors overthrowing um, the throne in Israel until the point when Assyria actually overthrows Israel and leads them into captivity. It's into this context of... Of, of really political peace and material prosperity, although that is shifting within the, pro, uh, the prophecy of Hosea at this very time. Moral corruption and spiritual bankruptcy is happening at the same time. We see that um, if uh, according to all of these kings, Hosea's ministry would have been from around 790 B.C. to, to anywhere up to the point where um, the Assyrians overthrown, overthrow Israel in 722 B.C. Um, so there's a little bit... I've, I, there is a little uncertainty of how many years, but it's anywhere really from 30 to 60 years of prophetic ministry that Hosea was a part of. Now, you may have heard the term before, reluctant prophet. right? The, the, the role of the prophets in the Old Testament were often really, really difficult. They weren't fun. They weren't fun at all. They would speak on behalf of God to people who did not want to hear a word of what they were saying. I think Hosea could, in a, in a lot of ways, be the poster child for Reluctant prophet. He's got a tough gig ahead of him, as we're going to come to discover this morning and in the coming weeks. He came after the prophet Amos in terms of timeline in the Bible. He came after the promise the Prophet Amos, and at the same time as Isaiah and Micah, although they were prophets in Judah to the south. In your Bible in Second Kings chapters fourteen to twenty and in second chronicles twenty-six to thirty-two, if you were to read those passages, it's the exact same time period that Hosea was ministering in. What's unique about the book of Hosea, and why I say he's kind of the poster child for having a tough gig as a prophet, is that his very life becomes the illustration. His very life becomes a billboard to the nation of Israel of what they are like, of what God is like, and what they are like. And and so the book of Hosea has some really personal illustrations that Hosea's life will show, as well as just illustration after illustration, painting a picture of their uh, idolatry, really. The illustrations in this book are a promiscuous wife, a stubborn heifer, a silly dove. I I, I didn't call the promiscuous wife a stubborn heifer, by the way. There's a comma there. All right, promiscuous wife, a stubborn heifer. A silly dove, oh dear, a treacherous bow, a luxuriant vine, and grapes in the wilderness. He's giving these images. And so in the coming weeks, the way we're going to track through Hosea is we're just going to speak into these images. What, What do they mean by these? What is he saying? He's trying to give these really clear illustrations, parables, that he's living out of the nation before God. The contents of the book of Hosea, I'll tell it to you now, are shocking. The contents of the book of Hosea are shocking, but what we need to realize is the same thing that Israel needed to realize, is that the sins of God's people are shocking. That's what he wants us to see. And this prophetic book is a portrait, image after image, captured, that represent what's actually going on. Sometimes we think we have a clear view of our sin or a clear view of ourselves, are standing before God, we often think we have a clear view. Prophetic books like Hosea step in and remind us of the depths of our depravity, our need of saving, our need of being found in Jesus. So, because this little book is shocking, I'm going to be really honest with you. My sermon points this morning are shocking. I don't think I've ever had more shocking sermon points. I'm not doing it for for any other effect but to try and be faithful to the, the verses I'm reading in Scripture. Okay? And I believe by the time we're done here this morning, you'll see that it's not just some game I'm playing here. I'm truly trying to be faithful to the text, and the text is shocking. So here's a couple shocking points. Are you ready? First, we see in the text, we go from prostitution to purity. Followed real quick with from bastards to believers. Hosea chapter 1. Prostitution. Prostitutes and bastards. That's the imagery that God is using that through this prophet Hosea of how we are before God apart from him. Shocking, isn't it? But let's take a look. Verse 2. <clears throat> when the Lord spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom. For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, Hosea is becoming a prophet. The Lord first spoke through Hosea. And you know what his words to Hosea are? My prophet, Hosea. Here's the very first thing I am speaking to you as prophet. Go marry a whore. If you left your six-year-old in here coloring, um, you might be getting a little concerned right now. Um, our children's ministry is awesome. just want to let you know that. So just checking in. All right, I think we're good. Isaac's man enough. You're ready for this, right, buddy? All right, you can handle it. But here's what's going on. He's trying to give this really like this really clear imagery here. And the very first thing he speaks by way of prophecy to Hosea is go and marry an unfaithful woman. It's not she might be. She will be. And that's what I'm telling you to go and do. Those are his first words. In ministry to Hosea. But we see that he's going to lead it to redemption. First of all, we need to see, though, that this is imagery, just like I told you, because he says, For the land commits great whoredom. The reason for this, the reason that you're supposed to go marry a whore, is because the nation are whores before me. That's precisely what he's saying. He's saying it the land, but what the land represents is literally the entire nation of Israel. They are not the same people that trusted in Yahweh God to, to to free them from Egypt, to go through the Red Sea and to lead them into the Promised Land. They they are not those people. They have gone waywardly. And God refers to Israel's sin as whoredom, meaning that he views his covenant with Israel as marriage. There's a little silver lining here right from the get-go, and that's this, that he's talking about them being like an unfaithful wife, but what he's saying in the midst of that is, you are my spouse. I do love you. And what I'm about to do, though it's, it's, it's judgment, though it's um, discipline. It's coming for you, and we're going to see that fleshed out this morning. I'm like a spouse that wants to redeem you, and that's the picture. That's the imagery. And Hosea and Gomer are an illustration of that. Hosea's prophet ministry begins this way. The Lord said to him, go marry essentially a prostitute. Before I speak words of judgment and grace, God says to Hosea, I want you to see what it looks like to be married to a wife who's unfaithful. I just want to stop for a second. This isn't some grand point in my sermon, but I I simply want to stop and say, if that's something you know about, unfaithfulness in your marriage, um, God knows about it too. I can't imagine more deeper hurt or pain or betrayal than unfaithfulness in a marriage. God is stepping in right here in the book of Hosea in the first couple of verses and says, if you know something about it, your loving Heavenly Father knows all about it. So there's no better place in the midst of any kind of brokenness you might be experiencing in that than to turn to a God who says, I know a thing or two about that. I know what it means to have someone be unfaithful to me. In fact, I know what it means to have a whole nation turn their back on me when I covenanted to have a marriage relationship with them. God knows about it. And you can draw close to him in the midst of such pain. <clears throat> Another thing that, that that really strikes me is is this notion that we, we're reading about Hosea and we feel like, God, you would say to this prophet, go marry a wife of whoredom," Like, is that how you work? Like, we don't understand anything that doesn't equate to happiness, success, and personal fulfillment. I really believe that is, that. That what trickles into our minds and hearts often in the Christian faith is we believe that if we are gods or if we are chosen or right, if he really loves us, that, that all goes well, that we receive happiness, that we re- receive earthly successes and personal fulfillment, that everything we give our hand to is just great pleasure. It goes really well, and nothing turns on us, and nothing goes poorly. And I, I really want us to, 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 I really want to thwart that this morning, that we not be like the people in Job's life, in the book of Job, where his friends come around him and be like, What did you do wrong? Because your world's falling apart. Like, you need to check yourself, is what their friends would say, because something's obviously wrong with you. Sometimes our worlds crash down, and what we need to see is that, that God actually works in and through this. See, when Jesus came, the Son of God, to do his earthly ministry, can we really say he was happy? And, and in terms of earthly like success, he had great success and great personal fulfillment. Like, I don't know why we use these terms, because they're not, they're not Christocentric terms. They're not centered around Jesus. They're centered around worldly terms. Like, like, but what we know about Jesus is that he had true joy. The fruit of the Spirit was perfectly evidenced through him, all of that's going on, yes, and yet we know that he was a man of sorrow and, and he was acquainted with grief. His life was not easy and yet it was purposeful. It wasn't self-fulfillment, it was for our fulfillment. And so he went to the cross to pay the penalty for our sins and yet his life re- was, was one of havoc. His one, life was one of some people followed but many rejected, ridiculed, persecuted and crucified. For the apostles, it's the same thing. There was prison, persecution, and martyrdom. The beauty of it, we wouldn't look at at, at Paul in prison or John the apostle in prison and say, successful life. They must be happy. They were chained in ancient, ancient prisons. And yet in the midst of that, they wrote some of the most helpful letters to Christians that are in our Bible. It wasn't happiness they were getting or personal success or fulfillment, but they were living um, the life that God had given them, and we find that they had true joy in the midst of it. Um, and, and so we need to understand that Hosea is in the exact same place as them, this this sense of God is asking something that makes very little sense and seems unloving and unkind, and yet what we need to see if we, if we, if we look at how the whole story unfolds is God's going to use Hosea to paint a picture of his redeeming love to them, and he's going to rescue them. But they need to see clearly what they're dealing with. And so it's actually out of his grace that all of this is happening. Hosea reveals that. That God sometimes leads his children through distressing circumstances. And yet he takes us through hard situations to accomplish many of his greatest victories and blessings. I want to tell you the story. It's a bit lengthy. I'm going to read it to you for a while. But it's, it's poignant and it fits. Um, a story about a woman named Vanitha Rendell. This is what she writes about really her life, and her walk with Jesus. This is how she begins this letter. Countless childhood surgeries, year-long stints in the hospital, verbal and physical bullying from classmates, multiple miscarriages as a young wife, the unexpected death of a child, a debilitating progressive disease, riveting pain, betrayal, A husband who leaves. She goes on to say, if it were up to me, I would have written my story differently. Every one of those things was in her story. And if it were up to me, she says, I would have written my story differently. Not one of those phrases would have been included. Each line represents something hard, gut-wrenching, life-changing. But now, in retrospect, I wouldn't erase a single line. Honestly, it is only in hindsight that I can make such a bold statement. Through all of those devastating events, I begged God to deliver me, to save my baby, to reverse my disease, to bring my husband back. Each time, God said no. No was not the answer I wanted. I was looking for miraculous answers to prayer, a return to normalcy, relief from pain. I wanted the kind of grace that would deliver me from my circumstances. God, in his mercy, offered his sustaining grace. At first, I rejected it as insufficient. I wanted deliverance, not sustenance. I wanted the pain to stop, not to be held up through the pain. I was just like the children of Israel who rejected God's delivering grace in the parting of the Red Sea. Or, sorry, I was just like the children of Israel who rejoiced at God's delivering grace in the parting of the Red Sea. But, complained bitterly at his his sustaining grace in the provision of manna. As they wandered in the wilderness, God provided bread from heaven for them. But they grumbled about it. With every heartache, I wanted a Red Sea miracle, a miracle that would astonish the world, reward me for my faithfulness, make my life glorious. I didn't want manna. But God knew better. Each day he continued to put manna before me. At first I grumbled. It seemed like second best. It wasn't the feast I envisioned. It was bland and monotonous. But after a while I began to taste the manna, embrace it, and savor its sweetness. This manna, this sustaining grace, it, was, it, it, it is what upheld me. It revived me when I was weak. It drove me to my knees. And unlike delivering grace, which once received inadvertently moved me to greater independence from God, listen to this, sustaining grace kept me tethered to him. I needed it every day like manna it was the new it was new every morning God has delivered me and answered me answered some prayers with a resounding yes in jaw dropping supernatural ways I look back at them with gratitude and awe yet after those prayers were answered I went back to my everyday life often less dependent on God but the answers of no or wait and those answered by imperceptible degrees over time have done a far deeper Work in my soul. They have kept me connected to the giver and not his gifts. They have forced me to seek him. And in seeking him, I've discovered the intimacy of his fellowship in the midst of my deepest pain in the darkness. God's presence has been unmistakable through excruciating struggles. He speaks to me. He comforts me through his word. He whispers to me in the dark as I lie awake on my tear-stained pillow. He sings beautiful songs over me of his love. At first, I just want the agony to go away. I don't rejoice in the moment. I don't rejoice at all. But as I cling to God and His promises, He sustains me. Joy is at first elusive. I have glimpses of delight, but it is mostly slow and incremental. Yet, over time, I realize I have an inexplicable joy. Not in my circumstances, but in the God who cares so fiercely for me. Eating the everyday, bland, sometimes unwelcome manna, Produces a joy beyond my wildest imaginings. I have found that this joy, which is often birthed out of suffering, can never be taken away. It endurance, character, hope, it draws me to bring it uh, to, to it draws me to God in breathtaking ways. It achieves a weight of glory that is beyond all comparison. I still pray earnestly for deliverance for the many things I long to see changed, both in my life and in the world, and that is right, and it's biblical we need to bring our requests to God but much as long but much as i long for deliverance for delivering grace i see the exquisite blessing in sustaining grace it's not about getting what i want it's about god giving me what i desperately need himself and that's what he does through sustaining grace that's what he does through suffering that's what he He doesn't often use the momentary deliverance in answer to prayer. He offers it in the slow, agonizing, turning to him and lifestyle of dependence on Jesus through adversity. The Lord said to Hosea, Go take yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. What I see here is that tragedy Suffering doesn't necessarily mean that you've been disobedient. It's an avenue that God uses to grow our character and to draw us closer to Him. To draw us into the kind of dependence where even when things are going miserably, we have this deep-rooted joy that's found in the Lord because we've learned to walk with Him through pain and suffering. We've learned to, to lean on Him through adversity. We've, we, we've learned to be wholly dependent on Him because we have no other hope. And the only way we get there is by Him sometimes giving us a hard road. Not only that, it's also an opportunity for us to show the love and character of Christ in the situation. We get to put God on display as we walk through our sufferings with Him, finding that He can sustain and bring us joy. And so I want us to see that Hosea, like Jesus, like the apostles, it did not all go well. And yet God works in great redemptive ways to ultimately make things new and bring redemption through the hurts. In an unrelated book uh, to this, uh, uh, an author by the name of Jonathan Lehman said, What's unexpected about Christianity is that its hero doesn't risk all for a damsel, but for what the Bible likens to a harlot. What's unexpected about Christianity is that its hero, Jesus, doesn't risk all for a damsel, you know, a helpless princess in need of rescue, but for what the Bible likens to a harlot, to a prostitute. That's what's unexpected about Christianity is that Jesus risked all, paid all for the sake of essentially a bunch of prostitutes. And Christ's love wonderfully transforms the ugly into the beautiful. The picture is that stark. It's that difficult, but we need to catch a glimpse. In this story, we are Gomer, Jesus is Hosea. If you're anything like me, you start to read a book like Hosea, and you read, Hosea was told by God, go and marry a prostitute. And you know what I do? I put myself into Hosea's shoes. Man, that'd be really hard. I can't believe you would do that. But, But what Hosea wants us to see is, here's the shocking term, you're the whore. You're not Hosea, and neither am I. We're the harlot. We're the unfaithful wife. We're the prostitute, and we're the whore. We sit there for a moment, the young ones giggle, and then we keep going. But here's the unbelievable part. God still loves us and woos us through the gospel of Jesus. Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 25, it, it instructs husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Here is the picture of the church. Every believer, a part of the church, the bride. Jesus is the groom. And husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Jesus, the husband, put his life on the line and in fact died so he could save her. The great rescue mission. And what did he do by dying for her? What did he do by saving her? That he might sanctify her, having her Cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. This is what Jesus has done for the church. This is the great husband to the bride. But you know who needs to get cleansing? Only dirty people. The reason he went to the cross was so that we could be washed. It's only the things that are dirty that need to be cleansed. And when it comes to people, when it comes to the church, that's the work of Jesus. If there is sin in your life that has made you feel dirty, there is no other solution in the world than to come to Jesus and allow him to wash you. And the promise that awaits you is that he will cleanse you from all unrighteousness. He will take the burden off your back that you carry. He will take the sin in the deep, dark recesses, recesses of your heart and forgive it. And you will literally He will lighten your load, and he will change your life. He will take you from whoredom, from prostitution to purity by way of the cross. It's incredible. Jesus takes us as we are, unfaithful, prostituting sinners, and saves us and purifies us. That's the hope we have in Jesus. That's what he does. And we need to see the whoredom first so we can see the rescue and the cleansing. Secondly, from bastards to believers. Look at verse 3 and 4. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel. I'll explain that in a minute. For in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. So she conceived and bore again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, Call her name No Mercy. Beautiful, isn't it? For I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all, but I will have mercy on the house of Judah, their neighbors to the south, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war by horses or by horsemen. So God is is giving this judgment to Israel, but he's saying, I'm going to save Judah. Not you, I'm going to save Judah. Not by politics, not by warfare. Because I am God and I am that powerful, I'm simply going to make it be that they are saved. Not by sword. Not by horsemen, not by bow, not by war. I'm just going to save them, but not you, Israel. And he goes on, when she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son, and the Lord called his name, not my people. I was looking up the thousand and one most popular baby names. Haven't seen any of these in it. Like, let's just stop for a minute and take a look at the worst baby names ever. I'm going to show you that Jezreel is like really, it conjures up horrific images for the people of Israel at that time. So the first name has these horrific images to it. The second name is no mercy. And the third name is not my people. Like, can you imagine like Hosea becomes the dad of of these children and, and like no mercy is growing up. And, and, and Hosea like kneels down with his little daughter, no mercy. And is like, I'm sorry, no mercy. I can't let you off the hook. What you did was wrong and your name's no mercy. So go up to your room, do push-ups and all the stuff that you have to do. I don't know. Or like being the father of not my people and you're sitting your son down who has this total complex. Not my people. I've told you this so many times. I love you. I know you don't believe me, not my people. For for some reason, you don't feel like you, I love you, but I'm telling you, not my people. Again, I, I love you and I don't get why you don't believe me. Like It'd be hard to be their dad. That's tough. Like you go to a restaurant, you sit down, and they're like, is this Jezreel? No mercy and not my people. They're all going to have milkshakes. It's like, ah, like, like they, now the family at this point is becoming like a walking billboard. Like they are living out before Israel the judgment that God will have on them. And so let me explore what these mean. Jezreel means in Hebrew, Scattered. And this name hints at judgment coming to the dynasty of Jehu. Let me describe that, and the whole northern kingdom. See, here's the story. There had previously been a king named Ahab who wanted the vineyard of a man named Naboth. This is where it starts. Isn't it ridiculous? A king named Ahab wanted the vineyard of a man named Naboth. He offered him land for it. Naboth refused. He offered him money for it. Naboth refused. And so Ahab, King Ahab's wife, Jezebel, said, why don't you just off him? Just kill the guy and take it. And so he does. And then in judgment, judgment came upon Ahab and his family through a man named Jehu. But Jehu was um, vicious. It was essentially a massacre. Rather than bring some judgment for what they had done, um, Jehu massacred in an over-the-top violent way. Ahab, Jezebel, their family, their friends, and everybody who had any sort of support for King Ahab just wiped them out in a bloody massacre. And so when the first baby is named Jezreel, people are literally thinking of the most horrific massacre that they can think of in their modern time. That's what they're conjuring up. And so it's literally like their first child was named 9-11. So there's 9-11, no mercy, and not my people. That's their kids. That's the illustration. This is the reluctant prophet living out before Israel this very thing. For the violent bloodshed at any cost for personal gain that Jehu and his descendants had, God pronounces judgment. Jeroboam the second was the fourth king in the line of Jehu, and like I said, um, anarchy ensued. Just one after the other, um, they were they were uh, the kings were murdered for power, and someone else went on the throne. And this happened six times over. And so this word Jezreel, that means scattered, we see in Second Kings seventeen verse six that this actually would. Come to pass in the ninth year of Hoshea, the king of Assyria, the captured Samaria, and he carried the Israelites away to Assyria and placed them in Hala and on the harbor, the river of Gozan, and the cities of Medes. Through Hosea, God is forecasting the scattering of the Jewish people, a prophetic name that came just a short time before Samaria was overthrown by the Assyrians in 722 BC. That's child number one. Jez, uh, Jezreel. Child number two, we see in verse six, Lo Ruhama, no mercy, or not pitied, or no pity. Israel had become friendly with, with neighboring countries, including Assyria, and adopted many of their religious practices and worship of their idols. And so God is declaring a time that is coming where he will not cause... Uh, He will not have pity on them. He will not have mercy on them. Why? Because they've they've changed their allegiance from from faithfulness to God to adopting neighboring religions and idols and they're worshiping them. And so God is simply, really, what he's doing is just saying, I'm going to give you the desires of your heart. You want to worship over there? So be it. But there's no power in those idols that you worship. There's power in my name, but you're abandoning me. But I'll give you what you want. If you don't look to me, I won't allow you to look to me. And so I will show you no mercy. And essentially I'll leave you to your own devices. But I'll leave you to the desires of your heart. You don't want me. So I will remove my mercy from you. And there's this declaration in the naming of the second child. Then lo a me comes. Not my people or no kin of mine. And Israel at this time believed God wasn't enough, and so they really adopted syncretism. Syncretism is really the, the blending of, of, of different faiths. Emily and I spent some time living in Vancouver, and it's just like this isn't an ancient thing. This is this is all new, right? Like we just saw, like, you know, people in, in Vancouver just is just, oh, I love this from Buddhism, so I'm going to adopt these. And I, I love the, the commitment by Muslims to pray so much. And so I'm, I'm going to adopt that piece of what they have. And I, I like this tradition in Christianity. I'm going to take that on. And it's just sort of this... Spiritualism—that—that—it's that it's, it's syncretism is what it is. You're just gathering things to your liking, and 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 causing your own, really adopting your own faith. And that's exactly what the nation of Israel were doing at this time. So it's a word that we need to hear. It's still happening around us, and we need to hear it. Their lack of faith in God led them to shore up their bets with Baal. So they'd think, okay, God, come through for us, come through with us. They'd they'd worship God, but then, I don't know, if it's not looking like it's going to rain, and this is an agricultural society. And so they'd turn to the Baals, right? And and they would worship Baal, because Baal was believed to be this agricultural god, this weather god. And so they worshipped Baal for control over agriculture and fertility, and, but, but, but when they would adopt that when they would pray to Baal, they'd go to the temple and there, there was Baal worship and it involved sexuality, with, um, sex with prostitutes, bestiality, incest, drunkenness, ritual prostitution, and then all sorts of perversion. So it's not just like, oh, we're just taking a little bit of this here. They're literally adopting the practices of Baal worshippers and living that way. They've totally turned their hearts from God and to this. They are a nation that has other lovers and they are unfaithful. They're building allegiances with the Assyrians because they're not trusting that God will back them and be their support, even though God just declared that He'll do precisely that for Judah. He can do that. And so, um, so much so that God declares that on a national scale, they are a brothel of prostitutes. So much so that Hosea, Gomer, and their kids are, will be these living illustrations, right? These living portraits. It's important for us when we talk about syncretism to recognize it's not only an ancient practice. We need to guard against it too. If there's anything in in, in your heart where you say, okay, I trust God for this, but... I don't see him coming through for me over here, so I just got to take matters into my own hands, or I got to trust this person over here to do this piece for me. And, and, and we, we, we claim faith in Jesus, and yet when, when the rubber hits the road and in, in different facets of our lives, for whatever reason, we've, we've separated different areas in our lives, and maybe we trust Jesus over here for this part because that feels natural, but where there's these other elements going on, we don't trust him in those. We don't even relate to him in those. We don't even bring him into those, and we're just... Hoping upon hope in our own methods, our own means, and anything we can find that will help, help, help the situation work out to our liking, we just trust over there. But what we're called to in the faith is wholehearted discipleship in Jesus. Trust that he will do right by us, that, that, that he will love us, that he will, will provide it, all of our needs, and, and trust him in that. This idea that Jesus plus nothing equals everything. But in reality, we often say Jesus plus this, please, uh, Jesus plus this thing working out, or Jesus plus me getting this thing equals everything. We always have more that we want, but what, but we're, we're, what we, like, like Hosea is trying to describe to Israel, what we are to discover in Jesus is that we need nothing more than wholehearted dependence and relationship with him. He's the groom, we're the bride. You have everything you need in your spouse, if that's the case. See, Jesus is the only one worthy of our allegiance, our lives, and our worship. And he's the only one that truly satisfies and is all we need. And when we turn to lesser things, to fleeting pleasures, they never satisfy. So God is trying to draw these people back. He's trying to draw them from bastard children to believers, to full, flourishing faith. A number of years ago, my wife Emily worked at a, a drop-in center in Abbotsford for at-risk youth, homeless youth, and I began to volunteer there, and I noticed Emily there, and my volunteerism just skyrocketed. I was there a lot. Um, one of the one of the teenagers that would come in sometimes, I, I just, it wasn't only me, but, but really all of us, uh, all of the team, the volunteers and the staff, just really struggled with this one young man. Uh, he was just really slimy. <laughs> like he was just this, oh he was like such dirty vile language um, the way he treated girls the 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 way he acted uh it just oh it irked me like i just i if it just i it just felt ah uh, so slimy i just this guy whenever he'd come in i'd be like oh and you could kind of feel the room deflate like there's just something that happened but the here's the thing that began to change it all is uh, we, we, we discovered his upbringing, his life, and his current circumstances. That he, At that time, he had no dad, and it turned out that his mom was a prostitute, and she was addicted to crack. So we began to step back a little bit and say, okay, here's the thing that changed it for me. So I thought to myself, if I had no dad, and my mom was a crack-addicted prostitute, would I be any different than this kid? I think I'd be even worse off. If I grew up in his shoes, I do not know what would happen to me. In a sense, when we give our hearts to anything but Jesus, like our lives, anything but Jesus, it's this, is so unhealthy. Our lives unravel. There's nothing to do with our sin and our hurts. There's not a loving Heavenly Father who draws us in and woos us and, and cleans up right, our, our, our hurts, who cares for us and protects us. We, we abandon that if we don't turn to Jesus. And Essentially, we're left to go down a track that we're born into. We're born into this soon. And we're bent towards sin and rebellion. We're a bunch of bastard sons in need of rescue. And love and hope. But here in the text, in verse 10 and on, is where it begins to shift. H.D. Beebe a commentator says, "Dire warnings and promised destruction, which we've seen, are followed by, here they come, promises of restoration. Fatal sicknesses carry hints of healing. Chaos points to new creation, and despair points. It's coming. See, this is the beginning of the book, not the end. There is more story, and God has not turned once and for all from his adulterous wife. We're sitting here for a minute. We're we're looking at chapter 1, but it's only the beginning of the book. There's so much more. And look what already comes at the end of chapter 1. God declares... Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. He remembers back to Genesis chapter 22 where he meets with Abraham and says, I will surely bless you and will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. You've been an unfaithful wife, he's beginning to say, but I made a covenant with you and I'm not about to break it. You broke it, but even still I am not going to break it. Salvation for Israel and for all must come the same way it did for Abraham, by grace through faith. Read Romans chapter 4. Read Hebrews chapter 11. Abraham believed in God and it was credited to him as righteousness. There was this faith. It was counted to him as righteousness. It goes on. The promises go on. In the place where it was said to them, you're not my people which we were just sitting in, it shall be said to them, children of the living God and the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together and they shall appoint for themselves one head who will be Jesus. There's this hope, this shadow of the Savior and Messiah to come in Jesus. And they shall go up from the land for great shall be the day of Jezreel. What? A great day for Jezreel? And then it concludes in chapter 2, verse 1. Say to your brothers, you are my people. And to your sisters, you have received mercy. You know what's happening? You know I was concluding this statement. From, It's an interesting play here on the word Jezreel in Hebrew. Jezreel means scattered. Jezreel also means planted. You were Jezreel, scattered. You will be Jezreel, planted. You were low, Ruhamah. Now you will be Ruhamah. From no mercy to mercy, from not pity to pity, and from lo a me to a me, from not my people to my people. Here he says, You were scattered, you'll be planted. You were not you were, would not receive mercy, you will receive mercy. You're not my people, you are my people. Centuries later, the apostle Paul, the Apostle Peter shows up, right? Jesus' most outspoken disciple. And he writes in First Peter chapter two, verse 10. Straight from the pen of Hosea, he picks up on it. Once you were not a people, Peter declares to the church, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, you were apart from Jesus, but in Christ, now you have received mercy. Peter zeroes in on the words of Hosea that are very true of our lives apart from Jesus and declares, though, that in Jesus, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. These words are fulfilled again and again whenever a soul of Israel or the nations turns to God in repentance, trusting in Jesus for salvation. Whenever anyone gives their life to Jesus, they go from not my people to my people, from no mercy to mercy. Whoever you are, whatever you've done. Hosea is being so intentional about literally talking about prostitution and being a bastard child. And saying there's redemption for you. There's hope for you. Whoever you are, whatever you've done, there's hope for you. If God saves, and he does, then you can be saved. God saves. Where we have been unfaithful, this is the great heart of the story, he's faithful. Where our sin and rebellion cause a chasm between us and Jesus, he bridges the gap and woos us with his grace. This, my friends, is the story of everyone who has come to saving faith in Jesus. We were scattered, we were with no mercy, and we were not God's people. But now, in Christ, we have been planted, we have received mercy, and we are his. Praise God. Hey, look, if you've never given your life to Jesus and any of this um, stirs your heart, I just invite you, you that, that's just something you can pray to the Lord. Say, God, I haven't known what to do with the burdens I carry, with the sin in my life. I've been trying to make it on my own or I've been trying to make it in other ways or been trying to make it in my own syncretized faith, but I'm realizing my only hope rests in Jesus. If that's your, if, if that's your heart's cry this morning, I just encourage you to pray that to the Lord. Pray to him. God, would you save me? What a mess I've made of it, God. Would you adopt me in and you become a part of the family of God? I encourage you to do that, and and I'd love if you'd let us know. Also, to us as a church, we're going through a series like this for a couple of reasons. We believe that all of Scripture are God's very words. Hosea is really interesting. We want to say, on the one hand, that sin is very real. And that the pursuit of righteousness, the pursuit of holiness in the Christian life ought to be pursued. If you're not going about fighting sin or killing sin, you're not living a life that's true of true discipleship of Jesus. So we hold that up and say, our lives must change. God does transform Pursuit of holiness matters, and we declare that, we declare that, that we are wretched before God and need saving. And Hosea is saying that too. And on this, in the same vein, followed up with that vision we catch of how horrendous our sin is, you know what follows it up right away, like within the chapter? I'll have mercy on you. I will redeem you, I will reconcile you, and I will draw you back to myself. That's who I am. Oh, I love you, is what God declared. And we hold both of those things up as a church. These things matter to us. We say it's all Jesus. It's all gospel. It's all his doing. And we need it. We're a bunch of sinners gathered under it and know that he saves. And we declare it and we're thankful for his grace. And that's the reason we worship. And we also say, so we want to pursue after him in light of that. With everything we've got to pursue after him. If there's an area of unfaithfulness in our lives, We will confess it and repent, but at the same time we'll turn to a God who says, I'll be your faithful husband. We'll turn to Jesus who looks at at the church as his bride and says, You're still my spouse. It's forgiven. We're we're really going to look into that marriage a lot more next week. Why don't we close with prayer and respond with a couple of songs. Lord Jesus, thank you that you show up in a really clear way in the pages of Hosea. Centuries before you uh, arrived on earth fully God and fully man. Thank you for the redemption that can be sealed in and through what you accomplished on the cross. You defeated our sin there. And from being resurrected from the tomb, you defeated death there. So Lord, wherever we have concerns about sins and wherever we have concerns about death, they're both dealt with by Jesus. It's happened. It's true. It's real. Lord, may we lean on those promises and those truths. Thank you for being faithful. Lord, I confess in front of my church that I am a man of unclean lips. Lord, I, I, I long to serve you, and yet the, the reality of my heart uh, reveals I'm a sinner. And so I cling to your grace, Lord. And yet at the same time, we get to sing of your mercies that you purify, you cleanse You take the dirty things and you wash them. Thank you that that is true of you. So thank you, Lord, where we've been unfaithful, that you are faithful. May that be the resounding song we hear this morning. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.